are listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Just a quick note before we get started that our team is really excited to announce a new limited podcast series from KHOL and Steo called Facets, Voices of the Mountain Life. In five episodes, Facets explores the passions, tensions, and healing that people find while living in a mountain town. The episodes will be released every other Friday starting April 1st, and you can find them right alongside Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe today and let us know what you think. Now, coming up on today's show, an effort to diversify the National Park Service starts at Grand Teton National Park. I'm like a relatively like small, like uh, like Asian girl. Um, so like you don't see a lot of that in the Park Service, or at least when I was growing up, that's not something you saw a lot. Plus, part one of KHOL's coverage from Tree Fort Music Festival in Boise earlier this month. All this happening right here in this one space is a really big opportunity to get outside of your bubble. But first, Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon recently let the state legislature's final redistricting map go into law without his signature. That decision put an end for now to a months-long contentious process tasked to lawmakers every 10 years when a new census comes out. KHOL's Will Walkie reports on how some Jackson representatives are trying to change the way redistricting is done, and they're looking to perhaps the only state more rural than Wyoming for inspiration. Senate will come back to order. Messages from the House. Late Friday evening, on the final day of the 2022 legislative budget session, Wyoming lawmakers had done everything they needed to in order to go home. Except one thing, redistricting. Still, at the time, being hashed out by a small committee behind closed doors. For everyone else, what else can you do to pass the time but watch the Pokes play Boise State from the Senate chambers? We're going to do, we're gonna stand at ease. I understand they're going to roll in a screen for... Little basketball, and uh... with less than two hours to spare before the deadline, the Senate managed to pass a redistricting plan by just three votes. That ended a more than six-month process with countless do-overs of maps and fierce debate. But Senator Mike Garou of Jackson says the fights weren't really about Northwestern Wyoming. For folks in Teton County, I think it, the whole process worked. Unfortunately, I think a state as a whole, I don't think it worked as well as it should have. Guru voted no on the final map, he says, because two districts ended up outside the deviation allowed during redrawing. That deviation rule comes straight from the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which says all votes should count equally and each seat should represent about the same amount of people. In Sheridan and Johnson counties, the lines were drawn in a way that those citizens are actually underrepresented. And Guru says that could lead to lawsuits, though none have come up yet. If someone sues who lives there and says, hey, you guys screwed this up. I think they'd stand a good chance of winning. Then someone else is going to draw the maps. Now a judge is going to draw a map. So why would the legislature create something vulnerable to lawsuits? Well, the process of redistricting itself may have something to do with it. In the cowboy state, lawmakers themselves draw the final lines, and Guru says that can make things messy. House Bill 100, that was a redistricting bill, was important to every single senator and every single representative in that building. Whenever we talked about it, everybody was eyes front because it was personal. It was about them. It was about their supposed districts. 
In the case of Sheridan and Johnson counties, nobody from that area was willing to compromise on the final lines. So they went with something that technically breaks the law. Literally, at one point, one senator was talking about, you know, making sure his mother-in-law was in his district. I mean, this is not the way you're supposed to do this. That's why Guru and other Jackson area representatives got inspired to look into how other states get redistricting done. And it turns out Wyoming is not the first place to deal with issues like these. My name is Nicole Borromeo. I serve as the Alaska Federation of Natives Executive Vice President and General Counsel. Borromeo is one of five members of Alaska's Independent Redistricting Commission, which was established through a citizen's vote in 1998. Before that, the governor used to draw the districts based on a board that he selected. And the citizens of Alaska wanted to make it as fair and equal representation as possible. So we moved to an independent citizens commission. Borromeo is a nonpartisan voter who currently lives in Anchorage, but has worked all over the last frontier. In her role, she says she attended 23 public hearings and spent more than 300 hours working with mapping software to present a final map within deviation this year. My goals were very simple. I wanted a fair and equal map that represented all Alaskans in a way that we could be proud of. The way Alaska's board works isn't devoid of party politics. The governor appoints two members to the board, the Senate and House speakers each make one choice, and the chief justice of the state Supreme Court makes the final pick. But Borromeo says, together, board members are able to see the bigger, complicated picture. It's like a maddening game of whack-a-mole. When you take in a certain census block, it skews the population. So you're borrowing from the district next door to make it within permissible deviation. So it's, it's a difficult charge for sure. Guru thinks an independent commission would be able to find compromises more easily in Wyoming. But when he tried to introduce an Alaska-style redistricting bill onto the floor, it failed quickly. Speaking during a meeting on March 8th, Republican Senator Dave Kinski of Sheridan explained his opposition. I just cannot imagine any expert that is going to understand my district like I do. And, and so I'm just loath to turn it loose to somebody to start drawing lines. Alaska's process also isn't without its problems. The state Supreme Court has already asked them to redraw certain lines in one gerrymandering case. But in general, independent commissions can create fairer, more competitive voting districts compared to their counterparts, according to the New York Times and 538. Borromeo says the critical thing to her is that the public knows what's happening the whole time. No last-minute changes, and elected officials are treated just like any other citizen. As voters become engaged in the process and learn about redistricting, that they'll, they'll follow it. And, you know, some of those human nature aspects and misusing power will be dealt with under the microscope of public scrutiny. Now that a new map is drawn for Wyoming, Guru says other issues are likely to take precedent in future lawmaking sessions. But he still hopes this year's tumultuous process will convince lawmakers to change the way things are done before the next census in 2030. Milwaukee, KHOL News. What kind of person comes to mind when you think of a national park ranger? If you're picturing a rugged, white middle-aged mountain man, you're probably not alone. 
But the National Park Service is trying to change that stereotype through a program called NPS Academy, which hosted a spring break orientation at Grand Teton National Park in mid-March. KHOL's Kyle Mackey reports. How's it? As long as the heel is behind. Crouched down in the snow on a brilliantly sunny afternoon in Grand Teton National Park, David Linares is putting on snowshoes for the very first time. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Where are you from? SoCal. Okay. So, so yeah, we so seldom get snow up there. Yeah, probably yeah. not a lot of snowshoeing. Linares is the first generation son of Mexican immigrants. This summer, he'll be trading balmy Southern California for the Montana backcountry as an intern at Glacier National Park. I found out about the Academy through an ad on social media, and I kind of looked into it more, and it was something that I've always wanted to get into conservation. I just knew that the Park Service was probably one of the best ways to get into it. Now in its 12th year, NPS Academy is a paid program available to 18 to 30-year-olds from backgrounds that have been historically underrepresented in the National Park Service. Julie Gonzalez is Community Engagement Coordinator at Grand Teton National Park and an alumna of the Academy who helped coordinate this year's orientation. The goal of the program is not necessarily employment, but rather to just create connections with marginalized communities or underrepresented communities in our country to their National Park Service sites. The Academy does that by recruiting a diverse group of participants, 18 this year, who get a week of training over spring break and then go on to summer internships at parks across the country, including Mount Rainier in Washington and Acadia in Maine. Angelina Pius from Lexington, Kentucky, will be working with backcountry rangers at Grand Teton this summer. She identifies as Black or African-American. I think it's really great to be able to have diversity because I think people are more willing to participate in things when they see people that look like them also participating in those things. And new scary experience might be made a little bit less um, scary if they are um, with people that maybe are from a similar background. Diversity also means lots of different things for the participants. Gabby Thompson of Page, Arizona, identifies as white and as a lesbian. Marissa Lopez of San Diego, California, is a biracial Filipino-American. When you see somebody that looks like you, that talks like you, um, or somebody that has their pronoun buttons kind of on their uniform, that really means, especially at least for me, that like queer folks are here and we are present um, and we are successful. And you because can. like me, I'm like I'm like a relatively like small like uh, like Asian girl. Um, so like you don't see a lot of that in the park service, or at least when I was growing up, that's not something you saw a lot. So, yeah, I'm very excited to, like, see not just, like, myself in that position, but, like, see, like, a lot of my peers doing a lot of the same thing. Um, and hopefully just, like, inspire the next generation as well to see, like, oh, like, More than 500 you know, interns have gone through the MPS Academy since it started in 2011, far ahead of the more recent calls for racial justice sparked by the 2020 murder of George Floyd. And while it's hard to quantify the program's success since employment isn't its only goal— Alumni like Gonzalez and Luciana Watkins are proof that the program is helping young people from diverse backgrounds jumpstart careers in the Park Service. The community that this program builds is unlike any other community I've ever really been in that has been, like, created by an internship program. Watkins is an Asian-American woman from Illinois. Being adopted is also an important part of her identity. 
as a media associate for the Grand Teton Association, Watkins is putting her educational background in both chemistry and communications to good work. And she says she still keeps in touch with the friends she went through NPS Academy with. As someone who is coming into the workforce in the park service and it's still majority like white, it's useful to have that community of people that are scattered all over the country who are like have a shared experience and we can like talk about NPS Academy or we can talk about like our experiences in the workplace and like that support system is is built in. Back outside for the hike. A majority of the group raises their hands when asked if it's their first time snowshoeing. How many of you have never been snowshoeing before? Awesome! I, I love that. So this is going to be a really fun act. Not to worry, the ranger promises. Getting them on will be the hardest part of the whole walk. Kyle Mackey, K-12 News. K-12 intern Skylar White also contributed reporting to that story. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, the 10th edition of the ever-growing Tree Fort Music Festival took place in Boise from March 23rd to 27th. K-12 Music and Community Affairs Director Jack Catlin was there and brings us a recap from the festival's Wyoming Showcase, presented by the Wyoming Arts Council. Leaving Jackson first thing in the morning, it was Boise or bust to make it in time for the showcase of Wyoming artists on the second day of the festival. Once I arrived with KHOL reporter Will Walkie, we quickly dropped off our bags, grabbed our festival passes, and headed right to the hideout stage to hear musicians from across the Cowboy State perform. My first artist interview was with Northern Arapaho singer-songwriter Christian Wallowing Bull, who spoke with us about contemporary indigenous representation. As I look to my left and to my right, especially at a music festival as big as this one, there are so few indigenous artists represented. For me, it's about the visibility, um, and I, I want to see other indigenous artists coming up in every single category, every sphere of society. It's extremely important to me to be able to see um, indigenous peoples across the board um, taking over um, mainstream media. It'd be wonderful. Thank you so much. Next, I got to chat with Jackson's own Missy Joe, who reflected on the local music scene and how beneficial it was to connect with other Wyoming artists at Tree Fort. The ski town we live in, there's a lot of like fun party music that is the market, and it's it's really fun to play, and it's great to have those stages. Uh, but I think what a lot of us musicians miss is as a platform to create original art. And the fact that we're, can, we can all be here and, and make this Wyoming connection. Um, like I have family all throughout Wyoming, so to meet people from Cheyenne and uh, Laramie that are here and Lander is, is really great to have this network. Hanging around the showcase, I also ran into the Canyon Kids, 
who are originally from Jackson and are now based in Boise. Speaking backstage at the hideout, band members Dusty Nichols and Bo Elledge compared the two music scenes. Uh, Boise is a completely different animal, I'd say. I mean, I think that we've only really scratched the surface so far. I think the major difference between here and Jackson is uh, there's actually a number of venues to play. As you know, we all probably know, uh, a lot of venues are starting to close in Jackson. It's just harder and harder to keep a venue operational there. And it's nice to be in a city that has so many options of places to play. Uh, 125 of the 525 bands playing are local, which is really a cool stat. And uh, it's I've I've met like you know I've met several bassists, drummers, guitarists, singers. Uh, I was working the door at Pingilly Saloon for a little bit, and that made me feel at home because it's like the most Wyoming bar, uh, kind of is reminiscent of Mangy Moose or whatever. So met a bunch of musicians through hanging out there. Next, I got to hear from a very different band based in Laramie called De Gringos y Gremis, who specialize in what they describe as spaghetti-infused Western surf garage rock. Bassist Dusty Richards reflected on what it means to have a growing community of musicians and artists coming together from a state not necessarily known for its creative arts. Especially having grown up in Wyoming, you're, there's so few people around that everybody's into something a little bit different, and I think that just makes everybody better. And so it's really great, especially being on the same bill with other bands of different genres. You just expand your influences more, and, and it's, it's, it's helpful for everybody to... Yeah, in a way, you have to be a way more versatile musician living in Wyoming than you do in a big city because you have such a niche. Yeah, in big cities, you have a lot of problems where certain genres will stick together, and they all start sounding the same, and they're not open to a lot of stuff. In Laramie, we'll really be, have three different bands on the bill that are completely different from each other. Everybody loves it. The importance of variety was also echoed by Connor Novotny of the Laramie indie rock band, Winona. I think we also uh, can get stuck in our bubbles in various settings, whether it's culturally or with our friend groups, social groups, identity groups. And so having a festival like this means that you're just, by the nature of walking down the street, you're going to be exposed to like 10 different kinds of music or 10 different kinds of projects. So it's like all this happening right here in this one space is a really big opportunity to get outside of your bubble. I was also glad to get out of my bubble and return to a tree fort back at its full strength after the first chaotic years of the COVID-19 pandemic. The strong sense of community and camaraderie I witnessed throughout the day at the Wyoming Showcase left me inspired and hopeful for not only the future of Jackson's music scene, but for the entire state of Wyoming. There's a lot of exceptional, diverse talent in the Cowboy State and the Wyoming Arts Council and Tree Fort are doing a great job of exposing it to a larger audience. For listener-supported Jackson Hole Community Radio, I'm Jack Catlin. Living in a mountain town like Jackson, how can we learn from accidents in the backcountry? That's the goal of the Fine Line podcast, which airs weekly on KHOL. Next, KHOL's Jack Catlin speaks to the show's host from the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation, Matt Hansen. This conversation was recorded live in the KHOL studios on March 17th, and you can hear the full version on our website, 891khol.org.
The Fine Line is a podcast series that airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. right here on KHOL. The Fine Line tells real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole. Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation's communications manager and host of The Fine Line, Matt Hansen, joins us now in the KHOL studios. Welcome in, Matt. Thanks for having me, Jack. So in your own words, what is The Fine Line all about and what can listeners learn from it? The Fine Line is part of our outreach and education project at the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to kind of help people get prepared and educate themselves about going to the backcountry. And this podcast allows personal stories from people who have been hurt or injured or lost in the backcountry to talk about the ordeal and then and then have uh, search and rescue volunteers also explain how they respond. And so there's kind of this compelling narrative that happens when you have someone who is a patient discussing their situation with someone who came to help them. And I think that through that, we're able to just kind of learn from different mistakes, things that people can apply to their own backcountry lifestyle and planning efforts and stuff like that. So what first got you into the backcountry and when did you realize you wanted to make a career out of it? Well, I grew up in Salt Lake City and has I've been skiing my whole life, been doing that just about more than anything I've ever done. And then when I moved to Jackson in the late 90s, started exploring the backcountry around here in Jackson, uh, became a river guide in the summertime and began working at the newspaper at the Jackson Old Guide, kind of really started to focus not just on my own backcountry pursuits, but those of other people and, and sort of became fascinated with the relationship that people have with mountains and rivers and just continue to be a backcountry enthusiast, but also have written about it extensively as a journalist and writer. And now with this podcast, you know, just kind of moving forward with those stories, um, I find them very interesting and compelling, not just for my own life, but I think that it allows us to, to grow better as, as a backcountry community. So The Fine Line has produced more than 40 episodes, ranging in topics from lost backpackers, skiing accidents, whitewater rescues, and even bear attacks. Can you peel back the curtain a little bit and let us know what goes into each of these episodes? For instance, how do you choose the topic and what is the process involved from start to finish? After a rescue, the team of volunteers kind of, you know, they do a debrief and there's a there's an incident report and then I can kind of look through all those and talk to different volunteers and after every single rescue, uh, someone is going to have a story. Some of those make for really good storylines and podcasts. From there, it just kind of, you know, if there's something that sort of piques my interest, I'll start to talk with different SAR volunteers who are on an incident. I talked to Rebecca Huntington, who has been involved with the fine line since the beginning and different people at the foundation, just kind of exploring whether or not different rescues would be or topics would be you know, viable for an episode. From there, it's just reaching out to the different people involved and seeing if they want to come on. And sometimes that's a really quick phone call. Sometimes it's a text message or an Instagram message, and it's really quick. And sometimes it, it just falls together. Other times, it's a years-long process even because you're really, you know, someone who's been through a traumatic event in the backcountry, you're asking them to go to a very vulnerable place and to relive that experience. And that can be really tough for some people. And, you know, not everyone is into it and that's fine. Like I can't blame anyone for not wanting to go there again, but for 
people who do come on and, and share their stories, I think that they find a certain amount of closure in that experience. And then also it allows them to meet and speak face to face with the SAR volunteers who came to their aid. And that's one of the coolest parts is just for me is to kind of make that and help that meeting happen because those are some of those cool moments that happen behind the scenes that I get to witness and get to see. And, and that is definitely a, a special part of it for sure. Well, thanks for coming in, Matt. Make sure to visit 891khl.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso is renewing his call on President Joe Biden to shut down imports of Russian uranium and boost U.S. production. The U.S. has currently banned imports of Russian oil and gas amidst the conflict in Ukraine, but not uranium, which fuels nuclear power plants. Barrasso appeared on Fox News Sunday to make his case. We have an abundance of uranium in the United States. We need to use it. We, in Wyoming, we have a great amount of it. Nuclear power is an important part of our electric grid. About 20% of the energy we have here uh, is from nuclear power. It is carbon-free energy. Barrasso already introduced a bill that would ban Russian uranium earlier this month. But boosting U.S. production is a whole other complication. Tribal communities across the West oppose ramping up mining operations in the region due to potential environmental impacts. Planned nuclear plants, such as the TerraPower project in Kemmer, Wyoming, could see delays in their scheduling due to uncertainty in global nuclear fuel markets. A plan for a new Brillum's grocery store in Victor has hit another roadblock. An Idaho judge vacated the city's 2021 rezoning decision to reclassify the old Victor School on Center Street as a commercial mixed-use property for the store earlier this month. The judge partially sided with a group of neighbors who sued the city for failing to conduct a required traffic study. Anna Trentadu is the staff attorney and program director at Valley Advocates for Responsible Development, or VARD, who assisted the residents in their legal challenge. I told the neighbors of Brolin, the, the citizens who appealed, I said, traffic is something everyone can get behind. Judges in Idaho understand the importance of traffic impact. It doesn't matter where you fall on the political spectrum. Traffic is just something that is a nonpartisan issue. Trentadu also says Vard previously supported a different proposal from Brolin's for a new store at the north end of town that was ultimately not approved. The Victor City Council is now expected to go back to the public hearing process for the school plan once the traffic study has been done. A Jackson resident competed on the obstacle course-based reality television show American Ninja Warrior last week. 28-year-old Parker Hughes will be one of more than 400 Americans vying for the grand prize of a million dollars in the upcoming season, which is expected to start airing in June. For most of my life, I guess, I had some innate desire to do, like, obstacle courses. I've always, like, done that for myself on the playground or with friends. Hughes is a chiropractor with JH Backcountry Health, who's lived in Jackson for about a year. 
He traveled to San Antonio for the competition and described it as a surreal and exciting experience. The community of the Ninja Warriors is amazing. I met so many cool people who are all just looking to be part of a, a cool community. You know, they're not like really competing that harshly. You know, sometimes you do, you're like, oh, I really want this guy to go far, but I also kind of want him to fall because I want to be in the next round or something like that, you know? So like, there's a little bit of that, but like still they were so uh, encouraging and helpful. While Hughes can't share his results until the new season airs, he says he's already looking forward to reapplying and hopefully competing on the show again. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.